Well, good morning, folks. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, to be specific, as we continue in our ongoing uh, sermon series, The King and His Kingdom, in uh, Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We'll be starting in chapter 12, and we'll be starting in verse 38. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. Uh, Grab your Bible now, and I'm going to ask you to do this. Would you stand with me? We're going to read our passage this morning, and uh, to give honor to the Word of God, let's stand, if you would, as we read uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 38. And uh, let's hear the word of the Lord. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person... It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And that's a reading of God's holy word. You can be seated. So this morning we'll see Jesus refusing to give to the Pharisees a sign that they requested of him. And so our sermon is entitled, Refusing the Sign. Would you pray with me one more time and then we'll dive into this text. Father, we pray your blessings and your power now upon upon the preaching and the hearing and the living out of your word. We pray that you would speak uh, through me, uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to your people, that our hearts may be encouraged, that our hearts may be challenged, that we might be rebuked if necessary, and that you would speak through uh, your word, the very words of Christ to us, those of us who are his followers, and those who have yet to repent and place their faith in him. We pray your word would be powerful among us this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Well, I ran across this week a list of signs, signs that people had posted on various places that were, shall we say, ambiguously funny. And so the first sign was posted in an office building, and the sign read this way, Toilet out of order. Please use floor below. Another sign was posted outside of a second-hand shop. And the sign read this way, we exchange anything, bicycles, washing machines, etc. Why not bring your wife along and get a wonderful bargain? (laughs) 
How about this one outside of a health food shop? Outside the window, a sign was posted and it said, closed due to illness. How about this one outside of a repair shop door? I like this one. We can repair anything. And then in parentheses, please knock hard on the door. The doorbell doesn't work. (laughs) How about this one uh, spotted outside a safari park? Elephants, please stay in your car. And last but not least, this sign was posted outside the gate of a farmer's field. It read this way, the farmer allows walkers to cross the field for free, but the bull charges. Okay, funny and ambiguous, right? Well, this morning, we pick back up in Matthew chapter 12. We are going to see the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign. But it's not going to be an ambiguous sign, and it's certainly not a funny sign sign like the ones we just heard, but a clear sign, a clear miracle that Jesus is who he said he was. And so starting in verse 38 and running through verse 42, Matthew is going to highlight the national folly of the nation of Israel in their rejection of Jesus. They ask, they demand for a sign. The national folly. And then the chapter closes in verses 46 through 50 uh, with the new family. The new family. We see the chapter closes with one final example of the rejection and the hostility that was coming upon Jesus at this time. Uh, And it even came from an unexpected source. From his very own family. And so Jesus is going to speak of the new family that he creates through faith in him. So begin with the national folly, starting in verse 38, we're going to see uh, the request is going to be made for an additional sign in verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So if you've been following along with us in Matthew's gospel, you know that they had just seen a pretty miraculous miracle, a pretty astounding sign. There was a demon-possessed man, and he could not see and he could not speak. And in their presence, Jesus healed that man. Utterly miraculous. The people start to wonder, could this be the Messiah? And of course, they respond to that negatively, but they had just seen an incredible sign. But not only that, but many of the Pharisees had been privy to several of the more astounding miracles uh, of Jesus. And so now they come to him with this request. Teacher, we want to see more. We want to see more. We want to see a sign from you. Now, wait just a moment. A sign? Really? They want to see another sign? They want to see another miracle? Let me ask you this question. Do you think that if Jesus would have given them this sign, this confirming miracle, that they would have believed in that moment that Jesus was their Messiah? Do you think if they got what they asked for, that they would have changed their minds, that they would have somehow repented and believed? I think the answer is clearly no. Just a few verses before, they had already concluded that Jesus did his miracles by the power of whom? By the power of Satan, right? They had already concluded that he was satanic in nature. No, they didn't need more evidence. This was a setup. 
In Matthew chapter 16, just a few chapters later, they ask for a similar sign. However, in chapter 16, they say, we want from you, Jesus, a sign from heaven. In other words, they wanted a sign that somehow wouldn't originate from him. Some sign from the heavens that this was God's Messiah. They thought that he couldn't produce it. And thus they would discredit his claim to be Messiah. And so we see the request of the Pharisees in verse 38. And before we move on, I want us to to see our first truth for today. What can we learn from this request from the Pharisees? Well, I think we learn this truth. Unbelief is not a matter of evidence. Unbelief is not an issue of a lack of evidence, but it is an issue of the heart. It is a rebe- an issue of rebellion against Jesus. Had, had Jesus done enough? Do you think that Jesus had done enough, had given them enough evidence to demonstrate both his deity and his lordship and his messiahship to them? Do you think he had done enough, church? I think he had done plenty, more than enough, and yet now they want more evidence? No, they didn't need more evidence. What they needed was a repentant heart. What they needed was to turn from their hard-hearted unbelief and to trust in Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior. See, friends, unbelief, our rejection of God, our rejection of Jesus, unbelief at the core is not an intellectual problem. It's not a matter of evidence. It is a moral problem. It is a spiritual problem because, friends, Every fiber in our unregenerate flesh, before we become Christians, every fiber in our being wants to deny the deity and the lordship of Christ. We want it to be false because we want to live our own lives. We want to live our own way. We want to be our own God. See, they didn't believe, not because they lacked evidence. No, they didn't believe simply because they didn't want to believe. One author by the name of F.F. F. F. Bruce, he likened the Pharisees and, and others even today who might critique Jesus, demand more evidence of Jesus as these Pharisees were doing to a tourist. Let's say you're a tourist in the Louvre there in Paris, France, and you're looking at a masterpiece, a work of art, and, and you're there. And he said it's, it's sort of like a tourist looking at the Mona Lisa and criticizing it, looking at the Mona Lisa and saying, meh. I'm not sure that's really any good. I think he should have done this or that. He, he says, and I quote, it tells you more about the visitor than the masterpiece itself. Friends, it's the same when we turn to Christ for more evidence, when we turn to, to God for more evidence. No, we are the ones on trial, not Jesus. And the condition of our heart is exposed when we come to Jesus as these Pharisees did. Unbelief, it's not a matter of evidence. It is a matter of rebellion. Well, we've seen the request in verse 38. Let me ask you a question. How do you think Jesus is going to respond to them? Do you think he's going to give them what they're looking for? I don't think so. Let's take a look starting in verse 39 as we see Jesus' response. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. That's a really unfriendly way of saying you're not getting it, right? The answer is no. In a sense, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except. 
See, there will be a sign, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Was Jesus going to give them the sign that they wanted? No, he was not going to give them the sign that they wanted. But he was going to give them a sign, was he not? There would be evidence, additional evidence, that he is who he said he was. But he would not give them a sign, not in the way they wanted it, not at the time they wanted it. Friends, today we have all sorts of things that are on demand, right? So you can go home and you can turn on your TV and you can watch sports on demand. You can watch TV shows on demand. You can uh, pull up your iPad or your phone and you can watch all sorts of things on demand. Friends, does Jesus give signs on demand to those who are hard-hearted? No, he doesn't. He refuses to do that. He speaks of them in rather strong language. Did you notice that? He says, you're wicked. You're wicked. He says, you are an adulterous generation. He calls them spiritually unfaithful to God. Friends, these were the most religious people uh, of Israel in that day. And he says, you're a bunch of spiritual harlots. You're sleeping around. You're not being faithful because you are rejecting me. No, he doesn't give signs on demands. But there would be a sign. There would be an attesting sign of his Messiahship that, that would come eventually. What is that sign? Did you, did you pick, it, pick, pick it up on the text? He says, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Friends, what is that sign? What is Jesus referring to? Well, we don't have to wonder. He goes on to tell us, right? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so this will be the sign. This will be the sign to you, Pharisees, that I am who I say I am. I will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Very clearly referring to his death. And of course, hinting at his resurrection. His resurrection from the the grave. That would be the sign. That would be the indication. I am who I say I am. See, Jonah is a type. Is a type of Jesus. Jonah's stay in the fish was a type of Jesus' stay in the tomb. Jonah was virtually dead. But Jesus was what? Literally dead, right? Jonah Jonah was resuscitated, if if you will. Jesus was what? He was resurrected from the dead, right? And just a quick note here before we move on. Some are troubled when Jesus says three days and three nights. And they wonder, that doesn't seem to jive with a Friday crucifixion and a Sunday resurrection. Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that Jesus uses a language that's very familiar to the Jews in his day. As the world-renowned New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes, quote, As the Jews reckoned time, three days and three nights meant either three full days or any parts of three days. And of course, we know Jesus was in the grave for parts of three days. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to give you the sign that you want, but there will be an indication It's going to come at my burial and my resurrection. And that leads us to two more truths that we see from this passage for us today. And the second one is is simply this. The resurrection of Jesus is indispensable. It is indispensable. It is undeniable. It is critical to our faith and to our apologetics. Let me put it this way. Friend, how do you know what Jesus said about himself? 
How do you know what Jesus said about you? How do you know what Jesus said about God? How do you know what Jesus said about the Bible is true? How do you know if he was not raised from the dead? How do you know those things are true if he was not raised in power by the power of the Holy Spirit? How do we know that our sins have been paid for on the cross? How do you know that we can have forgiveness in eternal life through faith in him if the dead are not raised, Paul writes, if Sunday was not a great day of rejoicing because Jesus rose from the dead? See, Jesus' Jesus's answer, both here and in places like Romans 1-4, was this. It is the resurrection. The resurrection is the answer. It is the key. It is our assurance Paul writes of the resurrection that Jesus was, quote, He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In other words, the resurrection validated everything, right? It validated everything. And so it is indispensable for us. But there's a third truth. And it has to do with how Jesus handled the Bible. How did Jesus refer to the Old Testament? How did Jesus speak about Jonah? How did Jesus speak about the queen of Sheba traveling to see Solomon? Friends, did Jesus believe the Bible to be true? Did Jesus believe its trustworthiness? Did Jesus believe its historicity? That is, that Jonah really lived. Did he, did he or did he not? He did, right? Did Jesus believe that Jonah literally was in the belly of a big fish? Yes or no? Yes, he he did. Absolutely. Did he believe that these were historical truths, that the Bible was accurate and all of this? Absolutely, right? Here, once again, he affirms the historicity, the accuracy, the inspiration, the trustworthiness of the Bible. So the question is this. Did he he really believe that? Is he just exaggerating? Did, did he believe that, like Jonah, for instance, is just sort of a, a, a tale that sort of, well, it really happened but the prophet just sort of exaggerated with the whole fish thing because we all know that people really can't be in the belly of the fish. Is that how Jesus saw the story of Jonah? Did he, did he see it like a fish story? Those of you guys or girls who are fishermen out there, you know how fish stories work, right? You, you catch a fish and in reality it's about this long, right? But then you tell your wife and what happens? It grows a little bit bigger. And then you tell your buddies at work and then what happens? It grows a little bit bigger. And in time, well... You know, fact becomes fiction. Is that what Jesus believed about the Old Testament? No. He believed it absolutely happened. He believed it was real. So friends, should we? Should we believe that? If you call yourself a Christian today, then you should follow Christ. And Christ believed the Bible. He followed the Bible. He obeyed the Bible. And friends, oh friends, we should because we can't take just parts of it, okay? Jesus didn't was like, well, I don't really know about Jonah. I don't really know if it really happened, so I'm just going to eschew it, right? I'm just going to kind of kick it out, right? He didn't do that. He didn't take the parts that he liked. He didn't take the parts that were uncontroversial. No, he believed in it in its entirety. You cannot pick and choose, even the parts that we don't like, even the parts that make us uncomfortable, even the parts that sort of confuse us. And let's be honest, there's a lot that confuses us, right? Can we just jettison parts of the scriptures that we don't like? Please say no. No, we cannot do that, right? 
Herschel York, a professor at Southern Seminary, once said, he said, when people tell me that they take the Bible seriously, but not literally, I take their words literally, but not seriously. And I think that's how Jesus would handle it as well. So we've seen the request of Jesus. We've seen his response. And now as we look at verses 41 through 45, we see the results of their request. What are the results of that generation of Jewish people rejecting their Messiah? Well, he's going to speak of two results. He's going to speak of, first, their future condemnation. And then, second, he's going to speak of their future condition. Their future condemnation in verses 41 through 42. And their future condition in verses 43 through 45. First of all, we take a look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the generation at the judgment, excuse me, with this generation, and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus speaks of that generation that rejected him, and he looks forward to their future condemnation. And he uses two comparisons. What, what, what is this generation's rejection of me like, right? Uh, what are the results of it? Two Comparisons that are negative comparisons because he contrasts them with Gentiles, with non-Jews. This would have made them upset, even angry. He contrasted the Ninevites' repentance at the preaching of Jonah to the present generation of Jews' lack of repentance to his own preaching, right? He says, listen, Jonah came and he preached to the Ninevites. And they repented. And then what does he say? But something greater than Jonah is here. And of course he speaks to himself, right? Because he was no mere prophet. Jonah was a pitiful prophet, right? He was a a reluctant prophet. But he, he eventually preached a message of judgment, right? And the people repented. Friends, in Jesus we not only have a prophet of God, but we have The prophet of God, right? He is the very son of God incarnate. And he's speaking the word of God. Something greater is Jonah. They heard Jonah. They repented. You are hearing me. And yet what? You don't repent. Second, he contrasted the queen of Sheba's seeking out wisdom from King Solomon with that generation, with their lack of seeking wisdom from him. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the king of Israel is here. Notice the comparison. Solomon to the Jew was sort of the epitome of the kingship of Israel, right? Because during that time under Solomon's reign, uh, Israel was wealthy and they were prosperous and they were at peace, right? And he says, listen, I'm not just a king of Israel, but what? I am the king of Israel. I am the Messiah. Something greater than Solomon is here. And the queen of of the south, she came seeking wisdom. But what about you? Are you coming to me to seek my wisdom? Well, no, they weren't. And so she would rise up at the judgment and condemn that generation. And just, it's worth noting here that in chapter 12, that, that Matthew portrays Jesus as the ultimate prophet, as the ultimate priest, and as the ultimate 
king of Israel. Back in verse 6, Jesus makes the statement. He says, I'm greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. He says, I am the true high priest. In verse 41, something greater than a prophet is here. He is the true prophet of God. And in verse 42, something greater than a king, right? He is prophet. He's Israel's priest. He's Israel's king. He is the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes, of all of Israel's offices, of all of Israel's expectations, wrapped up in one person, and do they receive him? No. They do not receive him. And so that leads us to a fourth truth for today, for us. And it is simply this. The greater revelation from God, the greater responsibility we have to that revelation. The greater God reveals to us, the more of God that we know, that we have access to the greater the responsibility that we have to respond to that revelation. See, the Jews in Jesus' day, just ponder that for a moment. What would it have been like to be a Jew in Jesus' day and see God incarnate right in front of you? I mean, he's there. And his, you can feel his breath when he preaches. You can hear his voice echo down the valley. I mean, they were there. They were there. They saw him. And friends, Jesus says that they will be held to a higher standard of responsibility because of it. Friends, they were very privileged in that generation. And we are as well. Certainly in different ways. We don't have the incarnate Son of God uh, in our midst. But friends, we are indeed very privileged with God's revelation, are we not? We take it for granted that we can get this book and have it in, our, in the mornings and in the evenings and we can bring it to church and we have God's full and complete revelation bound up in a single book for us. Friends, there have been Christians for millennia who have not had the privilege of having the revelation of God, not only having it, but having it personally having it individually. So friends, let me ask you something. We are incredibly privileged with the revelation of God. But friends, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with that revelation, right? Because to whom much is given, much is what? Required, right? Greater condemnation, Jesus says, will come upon that generation. They had been exposed to God incarnate. Friends, what are you doing? with the revelation that God has given to you. Well, he speaks of their future condemnation, but not only that. He speaks of their future condition. Starting in verse, verse 43, we get a rather odd story. You're, I heard it as I was reading it. There is like a, like a gasp. Like it's just like a, I heard it when I got to this section because it doesn't make sense. We're like, where does this come from, right? He uses an illustration a rather mystical illustration, I think, to illustrate the point of the future condition of the Jews in his day if they continued to reject him as king. We'll read it again, starting in verse 43. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And here's the point, right? Here's the point of the illustration right here. And the final condition of that person 
is worse than the first. And then he says this, that is how it will be with this wicked generation. Friends, in light of the demon that Jesus just cast out of the man. Remember that story? And in light of the accusation that was made that Jesus himself was possessed by Satan and that he did it by the power of Satan, in light of of the context here, right, this illustration that Jesus uses is actually quite fitting, right? It's an illustration of the future condition of a person who has a demon and that that demonic influence is, is, is cast out, it's left, but then there's no moral revolution, right? That person doesn't receive God into their lives. They just sort of tidy up a bit. And then seven other demons come in, and what's the point? Their condition at the end is what? It's worse than the first, right? And Jesus simply says, listen, you guys, I'm doing these miracles. I'm casting out uh, demons. I'm, I am working against the kingdom of Satan, and I'm doing all of these things, but you are not receiving me as your king, right? You're simply cleaning house. And what's going to happen in the future if you continue that ro- with that road? It's going to get worse, right? The devil will have more of a grasp on your soul. And that's the picture, the scary picture that Jesus paints of a person who is exposed to Christ, who hears the gospel and simply wants to sort of clean up their life on their own and not receive Jesus as Lord and King. He says the worst condition will be the latter. Well, we've seen the the folly of the nation, if you will. Matthew closes chapter 12 with a description of Jesus' new family. And friends, notice the connection. The Jewish people have done what? They have rejected him. The, The Jewish leadership, they've said, you're demonic. We don't want you as our king, right? We reject you. And so we're going to see here in a moment that even likely... Jesus' family, certainly his brothers, they reject him. They don't believe that he's the Messiah. And so what is the result? Well, Jesus is going to say, I'm going to form a new family. There's a new entity that's coming into being. It's alluded to in chapter 12. In verse 13, it's going to be fully explored, and it's called the church, the body of Christ. Those who are blood-bought saints. Well, notice verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he pointed to his disciples, here are my mother and my brothers. And then he adds this comment explaining what he means. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So in this final example of Israel's rejection of their king, it, 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 it hits home, right? It's closest to home. It's Jesus' own family. His mom is there. His brothers are there. We learn in other Gospels that his brothers did not believe in him until after the resurrection. Mary... It's questionable, right? I think she did. But the brothers certainly did not. We're told explicitly. And so they want an audience with Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us why, right? We don't know. Maybe she's just saying, hey, Jesus, it's time for dinner. You know, I doubt that's the case. They wanted an audience with Jesus. And given what we've seen in chapter 12 of the hostility that's been coming Jesus' way, I'm just sort of guessing that, that, that this little meeting is going to go the same way. I don't know it, but I think it's very reasonable that they had contentious 
purposes. And so to their request, notice the, the pattern, the, Pharisee, the Pharisees request something of Jesus, he responds. His family requests something of Jesus, he responds, right? He responds. He points to his disciples, he says, this is my family, right? This is my mom. Peter, you're my brother. Andrew, you're my mom, right? I don't know if he said that exactly, but that's the point, right? That, that's what he's doing. He's identifying those that he is closest with. He says, these are my new family members now. They're the ones that I'm closest with. With Why? Because all of the other Jews were doing what? They were rejecting him, right? They were rejecting him. But these, they believed. They believed that he was God's son. And so, in a sense, they became his new family. This is my new family. In, in a movie that came out many years ago, simply entitled Wyatt Earp, I want to show you a quick scene. Because in the, in the movie, Wyatt Earp, he's sort of the patriarch of the family, okay? And the patriarch of the family, he's sitting around a table, and he's talking to his family about how family is most important. Let's watch this clip together. The closer you keep your family, the better. They're the only ones you can rely on. Remember this, all of you. Nothing counts so much as blood. The rest are just strangers. Okay. Nothing counts as much as blood. The rest, Wyatt Earp says, are just strangers. Friends, let me ask you a question. Would Jesus agree with what Wyatt Earp said? No. No, he wouldn't. Is family most important? Nothing counts more than blood. There stood Jesus' mother. And there stood his brothers. And he said, you've rejected me. That's my brother. That's my mom. That is my sister. And that leads us to a fifth and final truth for today. Fifth and sixth, actually. Faith that saves produces a faith that works. Did you notice what Jesus said in verse 50? Who did he identify as those who could be called his brother and his sister and his mother? Did you notice? He did not say those who believe in me, although I think that would be true. He did not say those who trust in me, although I think that would be true. He did not say those who have repented, even though that would be true. What is what does Jesus emphasize here in identifying those who are brothers and sisters with Jesus? And let me just ask a quick question. Do you want to be identified as a brother and sister of Jesus? I do. Okay? And so he says, this is, this is how. Whoever does the will of my Father. Right? Faith that saves is a faith that works. True saving faith is a faith that is put into practice. As the great reformers sort of said, we are saved by faith alone, but a faith, but not by faith that is alone, right? We're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. James simply says it this way, faith without works is what? Is dead, right? See, doing the will of our Heavenly Father identifies us. It's a marker that we are part of Jesus' family. Francis Chan, well-known uh, pastor, speaker, author, he, he, he illustrates this point with a very Simple illustration using the children's game, Simon Says. So we play this still occasionally with my children. I'm sure you all know how it goes, right? But let's say I'm Simon, and then I, how does it go? Simon says, touch your head. Simon says, pat your belly, or whatever, right? Simon says, and if Simon says it, then what's supposed to happen? 
They're supposed to do it. But if I say, Simon says, pat your head, and Simon says, jump around, and uh, pat your tummy. You're not supposed to pat the tummy, right? You only do what Simon says, right? It's, it's very simple, right? Great game. You only do what Simon says, right? Very good. Francis Chan says, that's how Christians should be. We listen for what the Father says, and then we're characterized by what? Obedience, right? We're characterized by doing it. Very simple, right? Jesus says, those, those who do the will of my Father are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. And that leads us to our final truth for today. Faith trumps family. Faith trumps family. Many people in our culture, in America, and here in Cisna Park, would actually agree with Wyatt Earp. Maybe they wouldn't say they agree with Wyatt Earp, but in our actions and in our decisions, we agree with Wyatt Earp. We say nothing counts so much as blood. But friends, that's not what Jesus says. That's not what Jesus teaches. Who should be our primary, closest, most intimate, most connected relationships? Who do we have the most in common with? Somebody who has the same blood running through our veins, their veins? Or with our blood-bought sons and daughters in the family of Christ? It has to be the latter. Friends, chew on this for a moment. I have more in common with a Christian in Uganda than I do a cousin or an uncle that is not a Christian. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe Jesus. Because that's what he says. We have a family of Christ. Now, Jesus wasn't belittling his immediate family. He wasn't saying it's not important. He wasn't saying, I don't love you, mom. I don't love you, bros, right? Peace, goodbye. I didn't mean to do that, right? He, he, he didn't do that. In fact, when he was hanging on the cross and his mom was there, what did he do? Hey, John, that's, that's your mom, right? He took care of his mother. No, family matters. But it doesn't matter the most. So friends, I want to close with this. Are you a part of the family of God this morning? Are you, would Jesus look at you and point to you and say, that's my mom. That's my brother. That's my sister. Would he do that to you if you have repented of trust in anything else and you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and you're following him as your Lord? Then he would say that. He would say that to you. But friends, if you have not, then he would not. And so we're going to close with the words of John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And it's going to be our benediction. So would you close, and we'll close our time together with this astounding truth. John chapter 1, starting in verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, it says, would you read with me? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Thanks for coming.